If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. By the way, you may be wondering about all the, the lanterns and flowers and stuff. The Spanish-speaking congregation had a sunrise service this morning at 6 o'clock. And they are the ones who have gifted us with all of these things. Today is Easter Sunday. It's one of the two best-known Christian holidays, the other one being Christmas. Because it is so familiar, they both are so familiar, we, I think we come with a, yeah, I, I know what that's about. I, I, I know this story. And the importance or the significance of each of these days has been forgotten or glossed over. And on Easter, the reality of the resurrection has been forgotten. So that Easter now is seen as uh, like spring is, you know, when things return to life, you know, the things that were dormant during winter and now they come to life and that's what Easter is about. Uh, That is not what Easter is about. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected. There have been questions since the first century and there are many today who still question it. But more than that, there are truths that are foundational to the resurrection. Even before we get to the resurrection, there are other things that need to be dealt with that are questioned as well. And I thought with that in mind that today we would consider the resurrection of Jesus in the light of those things, as well as the implications of his coming back from the dead. Let's begin with the basic fact. In order to be raised from the dead, you have to die. You have to be dead in order to be resurrected. In order to have died, you have to have lived. And so there must first be Jesus coming in the flesh, Jesus dying and put in the tomb, and then Jesus being raised from the dead. The beginning of the first epistle of John That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle John was an eyewitness, and he writes at the beginning of his first epistle that Jesus lived. But before he lived, in fact, he existed. He was that which was from the beginning. The opening lines of the Gospel of John, written by the same man, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That which was from the beginning refers to the person of Jesus Christ. And what follows, John tells us that he actually came. We have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, and we have touched. It points to a physical encounter. This is not a ghost, it's not a phantom, it's not a spirit. This is a real human being. In a sense, you could argue that he goes from the abstract because we have heard Well, in the Old Testament, people heard the voice of God. Um, And so people say, well, yeah, you heard, but, you know, he could still be a spirit. Well, no, we have seen, we have looked, we have touched. Um, Yeah. Jesus was a real person. 
And John knew this, and he tells his readers that this, in fact, is the case. Going back to his gospel, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's interesting, the word that is used for touch speaks of someone who is in the dark and is trying to feel their way around. So it isn't simply that you know, a gentle touch, but it is someone who is groping to find their way, let's say, to the door to get out of a room. Twice we are told that he appeared. In verse number two, the life appeared, that which was with the Father appeared to us. But there are many even today who claim that Jesus never lived, that he never existed. And if he didn't live, then he couldn't die. And if he didn't die, then he couldn't be resurrected. In the first century and since then, there have been people that have argued that Jesus, in fact, did not have a body, um, that he did not come in the flesh. And giving them the benefit of the doubt, um, I would say that there is something troubling about thinking of Jesus as a human being. And even to mention it almost seems like we're getting into scary territory, but think of the bodily functions that mark us as human beings. Jesus had those functions as well. And I don't think that we think in those terms. And the early, the early heretics, I think they wanted to exalt Jesus and say, oh no, there's no way Jesus was a man, because to be a man would diminish the specialness of him, the fact that he was divine. Well, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but, but John didn't. In 1 John 4, he says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. In his next epistle, 2 John, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the Antichrist. So it's not like I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that somehow they didn't want to diminish Jesus by saying he was human. John says, no, anyone who says Jesus was not human is in fact a deceiver and is antichrist. In the Apostles' Creed that we confess today, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. So Jesus lived. The second thing is, having lived, he died. In order to be resurrected, he had to die. And again, this is something that is challenged by some, by many, that uh, some have said that Jesus did not die. Well, again, in the Confession, the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. Jesus was, did not merely die, he was crucified. Crucifixion was something that the Romans enjoyed doing. It was a method of displaying to people, uh, displaying people in the most humiliating, degrading circumstances possible. It was to say, we're in charge, you're not. If you mess with us, this is what's going to happen to you. 
Their purpose was not merely to kill, because if you want to kill, just cut somebody's head off. Okay? It was, in fact, to dehumanize the person, to say that this person is less than human. This is what will happen to you if you raise your hand against Caesar. As one author put it, as he thinks of the three men on the cross, three men pinned up on crosses like insects, exposed to the mockery of the passers-by, as it was a ritual of humiliation. It isn't merely the pain, which I think is oftentimes what we think of. There was also the shame of naked exposure. If you think about it, I'm sure that somebody has done this somewhere, but the paintings and the engravings of the person of Jesus on the cross always have something to cover his private parts. But that's not what happened when he was crucified. The Romans stripped their people, stripped them, so they could be completely humiliated in front of anyone who saw them. In many ways, they ceased to become human in the eyes of the Romans. This is what Jesus underwent on the cross. In the words of the hymn, again taken from Isaiah 53 that Tom read to us, he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. So when we talk about Easter and the reality of the resurrection, we need to acknowledge the reality of his death. This is important because there are some people who have argued that he didn't die, that he just passed out, he just fainted. And then when they put him in the tomb, which was cold because it was made of stone, he was somehow revived, um, and then people saw him afterwards. That raises a lot of questions uh, If he just fainted, how did he move the stone to get out? And how would a man who had been so completely degraded and humiliated and weakened somehow inspire confidence in his followers? Jesus died. As the scholar N.T. Wright has said, the Romans were pretty good at killing people. They were used to it. They knew how to do it. They were extremely effective. Their empire was built on it. So Jesus died. The resurrection requires that. In the ancient world, and for many people today, as we seem, the pendulum seems to be going back into a world of darkness and paganism, death is seen as all-powerful. You couldn't escape it. There was no coming back. It's once you went through that door, it was the end of the story. It's a one-way street. But some argued that physically you couldn't exist, but maybe your spirit lived on, the spirit of you. And, and so and somehow that gave people hope that, in fact, they would have continued existence. I think this is what happened with the Corinthians, and we'll get to this in a bit. They believed Jesus was raised from the dead, but there's no way that's going to happen to us, that our existence will be incorporeal, no body, just our spirits. But Paul makes it clear in our text that, in fact, the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection are tied together. So Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was raised from the dead. And there were witnesses to this fact. So if you look at your Bibles in 1 Corinthians 15, the first eight verses, 
Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So there were witnesses. But, but why are there witnesses? Why mention them? And Paul gives us a partial list. I don't think it's a complete list, but he appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to more than 500 at one time. Um, I think what he's telling the Corinthians is, if you want to go you know, to Judea, to Galilee, these people are still alive. You can interview them, and they can tell you what they saw. It points to the reality of the resurrection. Now, Paul's not trying to prove the resurrection. And I think there are many people who will read this passage and say, here, the resurrection really happened because there are witnesses. That's not what Paul is doing here, okay? He's simply saying, Jesus was raised from the dead. According to the scriptures, this is what the scriptures had said, and this, in fact, is what has happened. But having said that Jesus was raised from the dead, there are important implications of that, which we will get to in a bit. Any meditation on the resurrection of Jesus is to begin here, to see that he died and that he was raised from the dead and that there were witnesses. It is a historically decisive event. It really happened. This isn't one of those, once upon a time, there was a guy named Jesus, and he died, and then he, now he's alive. This is something that happened. But again, philosophically, people say, no, the really important stuff is in the world of ideas, that, that somehow this, this flesh and blood, this material thing is just, yeah, that the really important stuff, it's a very platonic thing, it's, it's up there, the, the world of ideas. And so if we're going to talk about Jesus and resurrection, it shouldn't be, you know, flesh and blood type of stuff. It should be in the realm of ideas. Um, so some people have argued that as a historical event, the resurrection is, in fact, not possible. Yeah, dead people, when they die, they don't come back to life. And then others would say, it's really not important, because it's the idea, you know, it's the notion of somebody that their memory lives on in the lives and in the minds of the followers. You may remember, there used to be a group called the Jesus Seminar, seemingly have faded from uh, the front pages of newspapers. Um, and there are two things that the seminar, Jesus seminar, said about the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, they said it never happened, okay? Uh, that there's no historical evidence for it, so it's not possible. Their argument is uh, when people die, they tend to stay dead. Well, and they actually had a press conference and they brought out a nurse and say, said, nurse, when people die, what happens? And she's like, well, they stay dead. Like, See there? So Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. So it's not possible. The second thing they said is, it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't matter that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. It's the message of hope. You know, it's like the spring. You know, you have a dark winter and then spring and grass grows and the flowers and all that. And that's what the resurrection is about. No. It is a historical event. It happened in history. I've mentioned this before, but years ago, many years ago, when uh, Los Angeles had two newspapers, the Herald Examiner and the LA Times, every Saturday they had a religion page. And I remember one particular uh, Holy Week, is right before Easter, both had articles uh, quoting from the German theologian, controversial, Hans Kung. And the Herald Examiner, um, he said, without Easter there would be no gospel. Not a single narrative, not a letter in the New Testament. Seems important. But over in the LA Times, the resurrection is not an event in space and time, not an object of historical knowledge, but a call and an offer to faith. So you don't have the gospel without it, but yeah, it didn't really happen. It's like, no, it did in fact happen. Why else would there be witnesses if in fact it had not happened? Now, something we talked about last year at Easter is that Jesus is not the first person to come back from the dead. As we saw last week, there are three in the Old Testament. Um, The widow of Zarephath, her son, the son of the Shunammite woman, and then the most fascinating story is some guy died and suddenly raiders come in, and so they throw him into the tomb of the prophet Elisha, and when his body touches the bones of Elisha, he comes to life. In the Gospels, we have Jesus raising three people from the dead. We have the daughter of Jairus in Mark 5. We have the son of the widow of Nain. Um, And then the most famous is his raising of Lazarus from the dead. And then we are told of three groups of people. The first is when Jesus died. We are told in Matthew 27. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rock split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. One of those inexplicable things that at the death of Jesus, people came back to life. And then in the book of Acts, there are two occurrences. One is uh, Dorcas, also named Tabitha, who Peter prayed over and she uh, came back to life. And then what Zib read to us last week. Uh, Paul is preaching and preaching till midnight and a young man falls out of the window, Eutychus, he falls to the ground from the third floor and Paul lays on him and prays and he is raised from the dead. So Jesus wasn't the first person raised from the dead, but he was the first resurrected. And that is an important distinction. All the others that I've mentioned died again. Lazarus died, Dorcas died, Eutychus died. There was that time when they had died and they were brought back to life, but they in fact would die again. Jesus was resurrected, he wasn't resuscitated, he was resurrected and he still lives, he lives eternally. It's a historical event. But it isn't, I mean, history is my field, you know that. Uh, But it isn't simply a matter of reading a history book and finding out about the resurrection and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I believe, I believe in that, I accept that. Um, There were witnesses, the New Testament is clear about that. Um, 
we should be clear as well that history matters, okay? Um, by the way, if you think that history doesn't matter, then the resurrection doesn't matter because it's a historical event. And that's one reason why in my field, in the present time, history has sort of become ahistorical, which is ironic. Um, but in fact, history does matter. So is history the answer? No. Can a person start with the natural world, creation, history, and somehow reason his or her way to the God of the Bible and the matter of the resurrection? If you read history, if you look at creation, and you're like, yes, there must be a resurrection. No. The only way that we come to know of resurrection is through revelation. Years ago, uh, when I was attending uh, L.A. City College, there was a guest speaker, and his point, he was a Christian, was to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead, to give philosophic and historical proof that Jesus was raised from the dead. And during the Q&A, somebody stood up and said, um, if I accept what you're saying is true, so what? It doesn't prove that Jesus is who you say he was. If Jesus was raised from the dead, so what? It doesn't prove your point. And I thought to myself, you're exactly right. We cannot somehow think that we can prove the reality of the resurrection apart from God's grace and revelation. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In other words, it's not simply a matter of history. I read the history books and all the proofs are there. Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and Peter's like, no. That's the way we used to think. But now that by the grace of God, we have become his people through revelation, we come to see the reality of who he is. Therefore, and this is one of the first verses I remember learning as a child, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Now, revelation isn't against knowledge. It isn't revelation versus reason, okay? What it does is it fills it out, it fleshes it out, so that the knowledge we have isn't simply, oh, a matter of facts, you know, a fact is a fact is a fact. But now it is fleshed out and it becomes real, the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. The resurrection, in fact, interprets where we are now rather than ignoring where we are. Jesus opened up the world to the new creation. This is the real world in a new mode. This brings us to the final, or one of the final points here. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus marks the beginning of new creation. We have seen before that the scripture is constructed over creation fall, redemption, consummation. That is, God created Adam and Eve, they sinned, so the world is in darkness. Jesus comes, he redeems the world, and one day we will spend eternity with him in a new creation. There was the first creation, got messed up by sin, there will be the new creation. Jesus is the first fruit. He is the first of that aspect of the new creation. 
He was the first person ever resurrected. Others were raised from the dead, but they died. He was resurrected with a perfect body. We will also be resurrected. The resurrection has two parts, his and ours. This is something the Corinthians just could not wrap their minds around. They were Greeks, after all, and the Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. They believe that somehow your spirit will live on, but certainly not your body. So if you would look at verse 12 in 1 Corinthians 15 and follow along as I read. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, this is the gospel, okay? How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him in fact, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. What has been preached and what they have accepted is that Christ was raised from the dead. I think all the Corinthian believers, they accept this. This is not the problem. The problem is, yes, Jesus was raised from the dead, but we will not be raised from the dead. By the way, you will notice uh, some of you in verse number 12, some of you say, so it's not the whole church, but there are certain people in the congregation who are saying that, in fact, there is no resurrection. I think that they would argue that Jesus came back to life, but it was after a few days. But some of their brothers and sisters in Christ died and maybe a year before or two years or three years and their bodies in fact have decayed. They're now dust. How can such a person be resurrected? Well, they're thinking in terms of resuscitation. And so they're like, yeah, Jesus was dead for three days. Yeah, you know, you shock the heart or whatever, he comes back to life and isn't that great. We believe in the resurrection. And Paul's like, listen, it's a package deal. If Christ was resurrected, then we will as well. You can't say he got it, but we won't. Because he goes on to say, let's say for the sake of argument, let's say for the sake of argument that Jesus was not resurrected. Then the preaching of the apostles is useless. The faith of the Corinthians is useless. The apostles who say they saw Jesus are lying. They're false witnesses. And the faith of the Corinthians is futile. In other words, you are still in your sins. And those who, are, who have died, they're gone. That they have no hope. And we are simply deluding ourselves. You know, if only in this life we have hope in Christ that we are to be pitied more than all people. That is to say, if our faith is banked on Jesus of Nazareth, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared first to Peter in the twelve, if in fact that didn't happen, then we're just wasting our time. It's a joke. We should be pitied more than all people. But look at verse number 12. 
But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. The truth is that Jesus has been raised from the dead. It is the beginning of resurrection. It's the first part, the first fruits. It began the process. On down the road, at the end of time, when we are resurrected, that will be the completion of resurrection. But Jesus began the process. How is that even possible? I mean, just think, how is it possible? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is the chapter in the New Testament on resurrection. And Paul tries to explain this, and I I don't want to give all the details, but look, if you would, at verse number 35. Someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? You know, how is this doable? How is this even possible? Um, Again, if you're thinking in terms of resuscitation, then what Paul is preaching doesn't make any sense. Yes, Jesus was for their, their money, was resuscitated. But Paul's like, no, he in fact was resurrected. Look at the next verse. How foolish. Now, the King James is a lot stronger than this, thou fool. Um, and, and Paul's not calling the Corinthians names here, okay? Um, In the Old Testament, we find that the word fool speaks of one who acts as though God does not exist. The fool says in his heart there is no God. So he doesn't believe that there's a God, or if he does believe, he acts as though God does not exist. And in this respect, the Corinthians are fools. They have failed to appreciate, as we will find in verse 38, that God has the power to do as he wills. That's really important that God can do as he wants, including giving our dead bodies a new body. And he begins with an argument from nature, what we see around us. As one writer put it, Paul is saying, you hold the answer in your hands. Simply look at the way God has arranged the natural order of plant life. In the everyday occurrence of the seed, you have the evidence to answer your question. So verse number 36 What you plant must die in order to come to life. Okay? So, for there to be resurrection, there has to be death. So when you put a seed in the ground, technically the seed dies, and it opens up and it gives birth to new life. But then, in verse number 37, what you plant is not what you get, but a seed of what you want to get. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. So, what is in fact planted in the ground is not what you want. So if you want an apple tree, you don't plant an apple tree. If you want a pumpkin, you don't plant a pumpkin, you take a seed. And that looks, the seed looks very different from the final product. In the same way, our bodies will be planted in the ground And in fact, they will be the seeds of the resurrection body. Paul is saying to them, you know, 
God is not thwarted by death. Surely you know, looking at agriculture, whatever you plant in the ground looks quite different than the finished product. The seed is the key. How does that work? Well, God gives to each one as he has determined. So resurrection is ultimately about God. This is what God does, not about something that we do. So if you look at verse 42, so will it be with the resurrection of the dead, the body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. This is what it means to be resurrected, to have a resurrection body. These frail things we call our bodies. They're gifts from God, by the way. This is what God has given us. But in a fallen world, they break down as we get older. Things don't work the way that they should. That's fine. When it is planted in the ground on the day of resurrection, we will have a body like Jesus did at the resurrection. The witnesses saw the person of Jesus, but they didn't understand, because part of this requires revelation, but he could eat food, but then he could suddenly appear in their midst, and then he could disappear. It wasn't like, I can't do that. I can't disappear. I can't walk through walls. This is a resurrection body. But it starts with this body that God has given us. I always struggle at Christmas and Easter because there's so much to say and knowing what to say and and what to leave out. Um, I do find it interesting that the opponents of the early church understood the implications of resurrection. I think far better than we do. The opponents of the early church objected to the gospel. They objected to the message of resurrection that new creation had begun. Paul wrote that to the Jews, it was a scandal. To the Greeks, it was, in fact, foolishness. And we could add today in the various schools of philosophic thought, for the Epicureans, it's impossible. For the Platonists, it's undesirable. Why would you want to be resurrected? For the Deists, it's unnecessary. And for the Pantheists, it's meaningless, because everything, in fact, is God. But for those in political power, it's scary. And for the Roman Empire, it is scary to say that Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is Lord, is a direct challenge to the authority of Caesar. But as Paul said to the Corinthians, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. Before resurrection, there was death, a horrible, degrading death. He was laid in the tomb, but on the third day was raised from the dead. Easter marks the end of Holy Week, the end of Lent. And in reading about the crucifixion of Jesus this past week, I was struck by something I'd either forgotten or had failed to realize and recognize in the past. We know that Jesus was crucified with two criminals, one on each side. And in the midst of their agony, we hear what we might expect 
one of them insulting, hurling insults at Jesus, saying, listen, if you're the Christ, come down off the cross and get us off these crosses as well. But then we hear something most unexpected. And I think we fail to appreciate this because we're so familiar with the story. The other one scolded his companion and said, listen, we're dying because we're criminals. We deserve to die, but this man doesn't do anything. And then he says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What made this man think that Jesus had a kingdom? What made him think that Jesus was a king? Here is a man who has no power to move his hands or his feet because he's nailed to a cross. He is a helpless victim of the Roman Empire. He is degraded. He is naked. He's bloodied. And he's about to become a corpse. And yet the criminal says, remember me in your kingdom. This is revelation. God opened his eyes to see the truth of it. And his central point in his thinking is that Jesus has the power to save. And there's a certain irony here that Jesus as his most powerlessness as he's on a cross, the thief sees that in fact he is the king and wants Jesus to remember him in his kingdom. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It's quite amazing. On this day, we remember the resurrection of Jesus. We should remember that he lived, that he died. Yes, he was resurrected, and by God's grace, we will one day be resurrected. If this is not true, then we're just wasting our time. We are delusional. But Christ has been raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that our feeble minds cannot fully grasp the reality of what this day means. But we confess that Jesus lived, that he died, and that he was resurrected. By your grace, one day we will be as well. That is our hope. If it isn't true, then we are indeed wasting our time. But Christ has been raised from the dead, and we give thanks for that reality. And if he is the beginning of the new creation, we should think hard about how we should live. We're now part of that new creation that Jesus brought into the world. We need to think about what that means for each of us. We give thanks for the Lord Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, for the gospel, for the good news, that though we were once lost, you came and found us. We were once in darkness, now we are in light. We were dead, but now by your grace we are alive. May we on this day think on these things. In the coming week as we walk through this world, 
recognize that by your spirit, the resurrected Jesus walks with us and should inform our decisions, our choices, and all that we do. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving your life. And we thank you, Father, for raising him from the dead. We pray that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. Thank you for your love, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.